This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Looking back and moving forward. Happy New Year, everyone. Yay! Here comes 2022. You know, I would like to say that I'm optimistic about this year. And, you know, I was until a little variant called Omicron came along. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Sarah, honestly, I have had to rethink what the future looks like. I mean, we keep thinking something like a brief shutdown or masks or, say, vaccines are going to get us out of this pandemic. But clearly, viruses are more limber than we are. True. The future does look different than I imagined two years ago. But, you know, we as EM physicians are uniquely adapted to imagine the worst and to rise to the challenge. I have really seen that this last year with the podcast that we have done and the people that we have talked to. Emergency medicine is such a cool specialty and really has been at the forefront of so many unique innovations. And we see this with our interviews over and over again. So this 2022 New Year's episode, we will discuss four podcast episodes that left us wanting more. Okay, to get us started, I spoke with Dr. Dean Blumberg, our pediatric infectious disease doctor and co-host of our sister podcast, Kids Considered. I wanted to follow up from our November 3rd, 2021 podcast called COVID-19 Kids Vaccine Considered. Dean, I'm so glad to have you back with us. Thanks for taking time again. Of course. One of the things that I can't let go of this year are COVID-19 vaccines for my kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, my kids are fully vaccinated now. And man, I really feel like the scariest part of the pandemic was finally over with anyways for me. And it could be my famous last words, but it was a huge relief. And my seven five and 10-year-old kids were basically symptom-free. My 10-year-old felt a little bit tired and achy, but he didn't get to miss the school that he was hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) I now have a niece that's less than five. And so my question for you, Dean, is when will we have vaccines for kids less than five? Any updates? Yeah, so the Pfizer-BioNTech is the most advanced in terms of those studies, and they were hoping to present data at the end of 2021 and then have the vaccine available for kids less than five the first quarter of 2022. But they ran into a little bit of a glitch with the vaccine studies. And oh, bummer. <laughs> yeah. So what they used was they were using um, a tenth of the dose of the adult dose in the kids less than five. And the preliminary studies showed a good immune response. When they did the larger studies, the kid 24 months to, to four years of age, their immune response wasn't as good as the young adults. And so it was back to the drawing board for them. And so there's two ways to address that. One is to increase the dose or the other is to give an extra dose. And they decided to give an extra dose. So for those kids, they're studying third doses as part of the primary series. For the other kids, the younger kids, they seem to have a good immune response. So those studies are proceeding. And again, we hope to get results then early in 2022. And When they present the data, if they're promising, when they present to the FDA, the turnaround time from presentation in terms of getting the emergency use authorization generally is less than uh, a month. Interesting. Great. Well, that's exciting news for my niece, and uh, we'll have to keep her updated. Now, I have been watching the response of the vaccines to Omicron, 
And I mean, I think we can all say it wasn't as great as we hoped that it would Mm -hmm. be, but you are better protected if you have a booster, especially for Pfizer. Now, my kids only have two sets of vaccines at this time. Are they going to need a booster? What's the plan for that? You know, I'd even take one step back from that and take a look at these vaccine studies, which is that we don't know what the appropriate primary vaccine series is. And so in the U.S., we gave the two doses pretty quickly, one after the other, in order to build up immunity quickly and try to get protection against the pandemic. In other countries, they gave the two doses more spaced apart, like the U.K., And you get a better immune response with uh, the vaccine doses spaced farther apart with a larger interval between doses. But we don't really know if a two-dose or three-dose primary series is appropriate and then when you need boosters, what the interval is. So I'm not sure if what we're calling a booster today might be part of the third dose in the primary series in a year or five or ten years when we finally figure out the exact protection that we get from these vaccines. It's not likely that we're going to have enough antibody on board from the vaccine doses forever for the rest of our lives to prevent against infection. The antibody, having a very high antibody level, will protect against acute infection. And that's why getting the boost increases protection against Omicron from about 25% up to about somewhere around 70 or 80%. That's why that works. But Remember that we still have partial immunity and the other arm of the immune system, the memory T cells, and those are still intact. And so when we do get an infection, after a few days, we do get the anamnestic memory response and we get our T cells kicking in the cellular immunity. And that's what likely prevents severe disease so that the breakthrough infections tend to be quite mild. And then we need to make a decision what's our goal here? Is our goal to prevent mild infection, every infection, or is our goal to accept those mild infections and really protect against severe disease, hospitalization, and death? So those are kind of the questions that I'm still waiting on answers for. But we'd likely need a booster every six to 12 months to get antibody high enough to really protect against even the mild breakthrough infections. Mm, That's a really good point. Let's step back another step as well. What do we know about Omicron at this point? Well, the early studies suggest that it causes a more mild infection, and yet those studies have been in young, relatively young, healthy adults where we'd expect mild infection. So we don't know what happens when Omicron gets into, for example, a nursing home or somewhere where there's a lot of elderly people or immunocompromised people, and if it continues to cause mild infection. And we also know that it's about two to five times more transmissible than Delta. So the models in the U.S. suggest that we're going to continue to have a rise in cases, that they're going to peak sometime in February, and we're going to have somewhere between two and three million new infections every day. And it's really, I know it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. Like so many. And yet the deaths won't be as bad as the number of deaths we saw during the surge last year in the early part of the year or last winter respiratory viral season in January and February of 2021. And the hospitalizations may not be as high. The resource use may not be as high because it's more mild disease, because people have partial immunity. So we do expect there to be more mild breakthrough infections occurring. 
So a little bit of an attenuated response. But I mean, it's interesting even just having this conversation, right? Because you're saying the deaths won't be as bad. And mm-hmm. what are acceptable deaths? What These are still deaths, right? This is still use of the hospital system. It's still going to impact all of us as healthcare providers. And it's still going to impact our community, our friends, our family. So we still need to take this very seriously. You know, and it does make you think also not just about COVID, but what about the other deaths that we, you know, quote unquote, accept deaths due to influenza or RSV or other things that, that occur at a relatively low level? And we've, we've wrapped our minds around that and we just accept that they occur every year. And maybe we should give a rethink to that because we do have means to control many of these infections. Yeah, absolutely. How is Omicron impacting our kids? Is this a different process? What does this look like on the landscape of pediatrics? Well, one thing we know for sure is, as we talked about, we don't have vaccine available for kids less than five, and so they're vulnerable. And we just had recent recommendations for the five to 11-year-olds, so their vaccination rate is not very high. It's about 25% in the U.S. It's much higher in the 12 to 17-year-olds. It's about 80% vaccination rate. So we're getting there. But that means that children are going to be more vulnerable to infection. They're back to in-person school for the most part. So they do have increased opportunities for exposure. So we are seeing children um, form an increasing proportion of the number of cases. And the last week that it was reported that there are about almost 200,000 children um, reported infected in the last week. So they they are being disproportionately affected. That's a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Something to look forward to on my next shift. Thanks, Dean, for taking time to talk with us. I appreciate you as always. Thank you. That's really interesting about the vaccine for kids younger than five. I'm thankful that as Omicron rips through our community, we are at least less likely to be hospitalized and we have easy access to vaccines and boosters in our town. Not everyone has that same access. And as we all know, not everyone wants to be vaccinated. I'm interested in any evidence-based way to reduce COVID, and so I was intrigued on the next steps for vaccine mandates. To go a little deeper, I reconnected with our local policy expert, Dr. Hunter Pattison, from our October 17th, 2021 episode, A Mandate for Health. Hi, my name is Hunter Pattison, and I'm the current Health Policy Fellow for UC Davis Medical Center's Emergency Medicine Department and the Advocacy Fellow for the California Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And Hunter, we spoke with you not too long ago about vaccine mandates. What has changed? What have we seen? Have health professionals quit over this? Are the mandates working? That is a very complex question. So, I would say that after the vaccine mandates for healthcare professionals went into effect in October, we did see a huge bridge in the gap in different areas where they were lacking in uh, healthcare professionals that still were unvaccinated. I think the big fear was that there were going to be um, healthcare workers that were going to leave in mass in particular areas. And actually, I think uh, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but the amount of people that actually that left was, I think, less than a percentage point um, all across the U.S. The vaccine mandates did work in that initial stage of trying to get the total amount of healthcare workers up to their first or second dose. The big snag is all the recent legal battles that are currently going on and that have been on 
ongoing in many of the kind of Midwestern and Southeastern states that have filed different appeals on the jurisdiction of the CMS to dictate that um, for healthcare workers. And it kind of bleeds into the other mandates that are kind of being rolled out now as well, too. Um, I know we talked about the the federal mandate, um, as well as in New York, they're rolling out their private sector mandates. And I think the issues with that is kind of like the ability to enforce that and the jurisdiction of those specific entities and their ability to have that as well. And that's still kind of all up in the air and in flux. So I think the data that we got, at least in the very beginning, showed that it worked. Um, But now the resistance to that is kind of putting a snag into expanding that vaccine mandate to other different areas and other sectors. How has the private sector mandate been received in New York? I think from what I've been able to read, most of the businesses in the private, private sector are fairly receptive to the mandate. Again, like there's going to be exceptions. And I think that you're going to see more of a regional difference in acceptance of a vaccine mandate and the vaccine mandate rollout. A lot more of the you know, more conservative areas in the Midwest and the Southeast, I think, since the mandates in the private sector are being rolled out more of a, a statewide and regional basis, I think there's going to be differences in the ability to enforce that and the reception from workers in those specific sectors. But, you know, hopeful that, you know, it still encourages people to, you know, get vaccinated. And now with the, uh, or with the new revision from the CDC and um, with CMS adopting that, that for someone to be fully vaccinated, it needs to include the booster, which will definitely be interesting to see how that is received since it's a recent change. Yeah, it seems like that could keep going on if we end up having boosters for different variants or things like that, that this could continue to be an ongoing battle. I mean, it's it's also, if you, if you think about it, it's the same with a lot of healthcare organizations requiring you to get your flu shot and requiring you to get your PPD test. And, you know, that argument, I feel like, is to me, is kind of null and void because we have so many other stipulations in order to protect our health and to protect the health of the patients if we're solely focusing on like the healthcare sector and the healthcare mandate. I think once you start branching out, it does get a little, little tricky. And, and so I think it, it just, it's hard to see until kind of the cards fall, um, especially with all the, the current legal battles that are going on right now, how that's going to kind of pan out. But I, I do think that we are going to see patches within the U.S. of the success of those vaccine mandates, you know, depend on like the different areas and the, and the support in general for vaccination efforts. Yeah. And it's hard to tie it to the mandate specifically, but we definitely know that, you know, states that have higher vaccination rates have lower COVID rates. And so you wonder if some of those places that are having a hard time uh, or are fighting the mandates, you know, whether that is contributing to higher rates as well. And there is a correlation in those specific states. And I agree, like the the states that are going to be having a more difficult time enforcing the vaccine mandates are going to have lower vaccinations and they're probably they're going to have higher rates of COVID, higher hospitalization rates, more bad long term outcomes. I, I think it kind of all blends together. Yeah, we'll see where we go from here. And now continuing our COVID theme. At the beginning of 2021, we were just starting to learn about this entity of long-haul COVID, or long COVID, as discussed in our episode, The Long Haul. 
Now, nearly a year later, I wanted to follow up with my colleague, Dr. Larissa May, who studies infectious diseases and has been closely following COVID trends, to see what we've learned. I'm Larissa May, and I'm a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis. Now, Larissa, we talked early on in the year about long COVID. Can you give us a little bit of an update on where we are with long COVID? Yeah, so I think there's still a lot we don't understand about uh, long COVID. There has been a little bit of additional research that's come out looking at long COVID, also known as post-acute COVID-19 syndrome. The factors that are associated with this kind of remain unclear. There was a study um, that was published stating that the factors aren't really clear. And so um, this particular study uh, included a prospective cohort of PCR-confirmed patients that were admitted in Saudi Arabia um, and then included interviews by trained physicians for up to six months post-hospital discharge um, and basically found that COVID-19 survivors continued to suffer most commonly from shortness of breath, cough, and fatigue at four months um, post-hospital discharge, but they couldn't really predict which patients were more likely to experience long COVID and thus might benefit from from rehab programs. And then there was a second study um, based in the United Kingdom Uh, an observational study of uh, 271 patients that were admitted between February and July 2020, so early on in the pandemic, in a UK hospital. And their primary outcome measure was to look at the duration and severity of long COVID and what the predictors might be all the way up through nine months. So they were able to interview 89 patients and found that 55 of them, 62% had had long COVID for three months, 52% of them had had it for six months, and uh, 49% for nine months. So There, they found that the most common symptoms were fatigue and breathlessness. And they did find that having had a history of COVID-19 pneumonia was the strongest predictor of long COVID in this population. So unfortunately, still a lot that's not known. It's also not clear how Delta um, variant and how the, the current Omicron variant might cause differing symptoms or have different risk factors. So, but about 50%. So we're thinking maybe half of people that get covid end up with some kind of long-term symptoms, at least at, you know, six months or so, and with the severity of the initial illness being the biggest risk factor. Yeah, with the caveat that the these studies were really conducted in hospitalized patients, so it's not really clear uh, for those folks that have milder infections that don't need to be admitted to the hospital um, or who are asymptomatic what the incidence and, and symptoms might be in those populations. Were there any surprises, like anything, any sort of long-term symptoms that have come out that we weren't expecting or risk factors for other diseases or anything like that? I mean, it seems like the most common symptoms are what we've seen, which are basically the persistent pulmonary symptoms of shortness of breath and then this prolonged fatigue, um, which is also characteristic of some other post-viral illnesses or post-viral syndrome for other respiratory infections like influenza. Thank you. Okay, that was a lot of follow-up on COVID-related topics, Sarah. I mean, it's like this was an important theme of our year or something. (laughs) Yeah, evidently COVID is something I can't let go of. (laughs) Clearly. So the inspiration for my next follow-up came at the end of a string of shifts where, uh, let's just say I was not at my best. I spoke with doctors Angela Jarman and Bryn Muma as a follow-up to Trauma-Informed Care 101, from May 2021. First of all, remind our audience what your titles are here at UC Davis. 
So my name is Bryn Muma. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. And I'm Angela Jarman, and I am an assistant professor. Awesome. We are super glad to have you guys here. And the two things that I just can't let go of is based off of a string of shifts that I worked the other day. And you know how you feel at the end of working a long string of shifts? You're just like a little crispy, a little bit your patience level is a little bit lower. Uh, it's a little bit harder to deal with those challenging moments. And at the end of the day, I was exhausted. And not at my best when I sat down with an angry patient. Tell me, how can I be better when I'm burned out? If I'm allowed to, I'd like to take a step back. And I would say, try to prevent these situations from happening in the first place. So I know I'm very cautious with my shift requests, and I try to avoid those long strings of shifts because I know inevitably this is what's going to happen. With that said, sometimes they're inevitable. And then I think... The hardest part is probably something you've already done, and that's recognizing your own fatigue, your own burnout, your own emotions that you're taking into the room. It's okay to have those feelings, but it's not okay to use them as an excuse to provide poor care. I agree with that 100%. I would say the first key, keeping in mind that particularly for residents and stuff, some people don't have as much control over their schedules as they would like to have. Like the number one thing is having insight, and you're both hinting at that. So you know, there are a few triggers that I notice in myself. And the biggest one, which I am embarrassed to admit, but it, I know that it happens is when I start resenting patients. So if I've worked a ton of shifts in a row, I start to look at the board and just think, oh, does that person really need to be here? And that's a huge trigger to me that no, I'm projecting onto them. That's my burnout talking. And that actually helps me recognize that I have a, uh, I think someone has called it a compassion deficit or an empathy deficit to recognize that that's my problem, right? That's not the patient's problem. And so that's a trigger for me if I'm going into what I think will be a challenging situation to maybe just take 30 seconds, take a minute, kind of prepare and get my mind in the right place so that I can offer that patient grace and not project my burnout onto the person that I happen to be taking care of at that moment. Let's just say, for example, that I did mess up that encounter, that I was not my most trauma-informed as I had that discussion. You know, theoretically speaking, of course, what could I do to make it better? Or like, what do I do when I mess up? So inevitably, you're not alone. Inevitably, this will happen. I think we all have encounters that we wish we had handled differently either because we didn't have all the information or just because we weren't at our best at that time. Um, so first of all, I want to just normalize exactly you know, what, what happened there. I think the first step is usually just to kind of take a quick time out. Sometimes it's in the room with all the team members, sometimes physically step out of the room and reflect, figure out what the problem is, apologize if needed, summarize, validate the patient's feelings, and then figure out what they need and how you can help moving forward. And I think that's very different for every situation. Um, that's kind of a generic formula. But there are times where I've been in the room in a trauma resuscitation and, and there's just so much going on and the patient's becoming overwhelmed. And we'll be like, let's just pause for a second. Stop, explain to the patient what we're doing and just go at a slightly slower pace. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it's stepping out of the room and approaching the situation from a completely different angle, explaining why a treatment or why admission is necessary from a different perspective. I agree with that. This 
very much depends on what happened. But in general, you know, for example, if you misgender someone by accident, definitely I would say you apologize, right? You own that and and you keep it moving. The other thing that I think um, is important is just that we are always striving to be better and there are going to be mistakes that happen. And so whenever something happens that I don't feel good about, all I can do is try to be better, right? So I can't always go back in time and erase what happened, but I can be better next time. And this is what we teach residents when we talk about M&M, you know, you make some mistake and then you'll never make it again. So I think, you know, reframing these instances as a way for us to learn and to provide better care for the next patient and it sort of helps take the burn away from an experience that you don't feel good about and can help you provide better care to the next person. Yeah, I like that. Apologize and give yourself a little bit of grace too. You know, Sarah, I say this regularly, but it is truly the honor of a lifetime to be a host with you on this podcast. You know, I was recently on a shift and I ran into Dr. John Rose, who was recently a guest co-host and is clearly a seasoned emergency medicine physician. And he mentioned how much he enjoys our podcast and how much he continues to learn. And then at the end of the shift, I learned that our scribe has been listening to our podcast since high school and was a fan as well. I just love that we can share with such a diverse audience. Yeah, agreed. And thank you to our listeners for another successful year of support. Please let us know if you guys have ideas for podcasts. Hit us up at Impulse Podcast or email us at impulsepodcast at gmail.com. The best way you can show your support for our podcast is to tell others about it and like and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our department for their support of this podcast. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for another year of making us sound good. See y'all next time.